0: Welcome to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and soon you'll hear the voice of Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor. This week we had a fascinating conversation with the sociologist Richard Sennett about his new book. It was a fascinating discussion and it was filled with anecdotes and thoughts and remembrances that we couldn't possibly keep from you. So here is the full version.
1: The author and professor Richard Sennett has been thinking and writing about how we live and work and move around in our cities for more than 50 years. But did you know, I certainly didn't, that he started off as a professional musician? This is relevant because his new book just out this week is called The Performer, Art, Life, Politics, and it looks at where and how we perform, the role of spectators during those performances, and how it all carries over into public life and particularly politics. It's a book full of riches, and we're delighted that he can join us today to talk about it. Richard, many thanks for coming to talk to us.
2: Well, thank you. I'm delighted to talk to you about the book.
1: And I know that the subtitle is Art, Life and Politics and it's about, you know, art and life as much as it is about politics. But I was wondering, did you write the book now because you think that performance and politics is more prevalent? That Are we in maybe an age of demagogues?
2: Well, I was spurred by both Boris Johnson and Donald Trump to get started in this book because both of them are demagogues who use theater to overwhelm their audiences. And that's not the only way demagogues work. There are lots of non-theatrical demagogues, but these two have done incredible harm by their powers as performers to disable people's ability to think about what they're doing. And we know that in Britain particularly, because Johnson, who you know wasn't particularly um, moved one way or the other by Brexit when he decided that that was the path of influence for him proved an absolutely formidable proselytizer for Brexit. Mm. We're living with these terrible consequences. So that's what got me going on the book, that just a fear about, about these these two men. I had thought very falsely that Donald Trump had departed the stage just the way I hope Boris Johnson has. But it looks as though he'll return as president again, even more vengeful and crazy than he was before, but still with that profound hold over his audience, which, as I argue in the book, is something that theater gives to him, and particularly nonverbal theater. Mm. I mean, talks cliches which you know are totally familiar to his audience, but his manner of delivering them is something that makes it seem like a kind of fresh revelation every time, which includes uh, his listeners, that his spectators are really intimately bound with what's going on the stage, which is also a way of giving, giving him control. So I'm afraid this book is more prescient than I thought it was going to be.
1: Yes, right, yes.
0: I wonder, when you, you've you analysed both of those, as you say, those demagogues, in terms of the relationship that they have with their audience, and I wonder whether you think the current age of material that is shared rapidly over many, many platforms, i.e. the idea that we're not any longer in a sort of bounded theater space, or even in just, you know, TV Um, channels that have limits too. it's limitless somehow. I wonder if you think that has had a big effect on the way that they have been received and the way that they've addressed themselves to their publics.
2: That's a very good question. My own thought about that is that it's the shortness of these, of these messages which constitutes a kind of whole new domain of political domination. You know, if you sit through a a 40 minute speech, that's a long narrative. And even if like Trump, it's it's a kind of uh, popular theater with people getting up and so-called spontaneously speaking, still it requires a kind of attention whereas the particularly online the capacity to feed people short memorable bits of information or misinformation rapidly expands and you know uh, what has struck me most about the performances that go on online is that the point of repeating them over and over and over again is part of the power that they contain? If you go on to Trump's Truth Social Information Network, as I have, it's incredibly boring. Except, you know, the same messages are their little flashcards again and again and again. So that's a kind of mind control which is not totalizing. But fragmenting the the, the listener.
1: Mm, it's almost like a. I mean, if we're talking about performing, it's almost like a a, a refrain or a chorus or a you know like a, the the hook in a bit of music that comes back again and again and again, and it's hard to dislodge, basically.
2: Right. It's a little like the theme song to uh, the Archers. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you've heard it. You've heard it. Oh it's no! You so said funny. it, and we
1: have it in our heads.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: But <laughs> yes. much less, but yes. well, in the book, you also address in some depth the role of the of the spectator. It's not just about the performer, is it you talk about the spectator and what spectators how much they were involved and how much they influenced things and you talk about them from from Athens in the agora to the to the flanners going around the city who were essentially observers to political movements and even mobs. I mean, the role of the spectator and the audience has changed a lot, hasn't it?
2: It has to make a big generalization. There weren't really spectators in our modern sense in ancient amphitheaters because people were talking back constantly to what they heard on the stage and what the chorus uh, told them. The chorus was in the audience, in the beginning, uh, in the front of the audience they were equal to the actors in a way. And that disappears and reappears and disappears like a rhythm in the history of performance. Uh, It disappeared as performance in the Roman theater as performances became very, very much uh, more elaborate. And it was a question of people approving or disapproving rather than actually you know, making substantive comments of what was happening. And then it reappears in the early modern period where you have these very engaged audiences who interacted with the stage through techniques like pointing, which is calling for a speech or in music for a musical phrase to be repeated again and again. The audience would go, point, point or settling, which is where an audience doesn't like what the actor is doing and chants along with them or literally drives from from the stage to what we have in the modern world, which is, again, very submissive Roman style audiences and the Trump audience is It is submissive. Without him, it's very interesting at the rallies that when he's not speaking and other people are filling in, people are bored. Mm. You know, they wander around, they buy Trump merchandise and so on. Now, you know, the thing about this, that political pattern is it's not so far different from the patterns of behavior that audiences have with high art. Comédie Française in Molière's time or the Globe Theatre in Shakespeare's time had audiences that were as much interested in each other as they were in what was going on on the stage. And the Persian Letters Montesquieu mocks this, that the real performance at the Comédie Française was in the boxes where people were smooching, arguing, eating chicken having the odd bit of champagne and so on. And what happened on the stage was secondary. But that changes in more modern times so that art becomes something which is the display of artfulness, of being able to do things on stage is very subduing to an audience. In an art like dance, for instance, before the time of Louis XIV, people could recognize on the stage dances they themselves did. Louis XIV was a phenomenal dancer. He was a great dancer from everything we know. And he used his bodily uh, abilities and his real art as a dancer to make a break with the kinds of dancing that lesser mortals did. In my book, I talk about this in terms of one of the first dances he performed, which went on for eight hours. It's
1: just yeah. a completely extraordinary just...
2: story. Our, Submission yeah. by and, dance. You know, people were so wowed by that, they couldn't do that, you know, that it became, you know, it had a political edge, you know, that it has sort of ideological edge in a way. But it was just the fact that ruler was somebody who was able to perform endlessly whereas his followers couldn't do the same thing and certainly not for the same amount of time. So this is a kind of rhythm that goes in and out.
0: Hmm. It's like a sort of reverse of they shoot horses, don't they?
2: Yes, exactly.
0: (laughs) The sort of
1: anti-dance marathon. Exactly. That's incredible.
2: (laughs) That's how it worked. Uh, That's a very good analogy.
1: The thing that struck me, though, about that wonderful story of him basically sort of dancing the nobles into submission, after a while they just had to say, okay, you know, you're you're better than us, was that that, so that worked brilliantly for him because he, as you say, he was a brilliant dancer and he was very physically very kind of powerful and very accomplished and could, you know, do everything better than everybody else. But that doesn't help the institution, does it, I suppose? It only works while he is young and strong.
2: Yes, Exactly. And what happened in the case of Louis XIV was that art morphed into ritual. That is to say, when he was young, he could do all of this stuff. It was unbelievable. As his reign unfolded, a lot of the gestures used on stage, a lot of small steps uh, became miniaturized as bodily rituals of behavior between aristocrats of uh, higher and lower aristocrats and aristocrats and the king. So, and that's also a very familiar story in the history of performance. It's true in dance as well, where dances that first look like they're absolutely, wow, you know, this is fantastic. Over a generation or two will be uh, absorbed into sort of everyday dance moves. Uh, something of, happened to love Fred Astaire, mm. and a lot of Fred Astaire's movements are movements that got to be absorbed into disco, you know. But not with the same grace. Mm. But they're the same kinds of hip uses and stepovers and so mm. on. anyhow. But it's another large part of my book. That subject introduces another large part of my book, which is about the relation between theater and ritual, particularly religious ritual. Oftentimes they're the same, particularly in Catholicism, it's a highly ritualized form of, of faith. But sometimes the purposes of theater can be used to challenge ritual. And uh, in my book, I, I give the example, which is a personal one to me, of a friend who was a uh, performer who was dying of AIDS, who used As You Like It, a piece which he had performed several times on stage when he was near death in a hospital. He performed As You Like It as a way of saying to priests, forget it. Uh, I don't want consolation. I want to perform something. Uh, which is fun. Mm. And that was also true with Commedia dell'arte uh, earlier, that kind of thing. Commedia dell'arte was a way of subverting a lot of religious ritual. So I'm interested in that tension. I don't know whether it uh, works, my explanation works well in the book, but it's something we often just conflate them as, you know, that all. Um, Rituals are theatrical, but theater can do something uh, which is more challenging, and certainly it can challenge the rituals of of power.
1: Mm. Well, one of the things that it can do, I mean, as you say, with commedia dell'arte, is it can make fun of them, can't it?
2: Exactly, and not only political figures but authority figures. I try and show in the book how, for instance, the doctor's costume morphed into, in comedy dall'arte into dottore, mm. who has his own mask uh, and his own ways of speaking like this, all of which are making fun of the savon, who were these Renaissance doctors. And it was very liberating to people because, you know, they're in the hands of the doctor, those times they worked in very stylized ways. And Commedia dell'arte just takes that all apart.
1: Mm. And put it as well, I mean, this is another area we're going to talk to you about. It took it apart, but also didn't it put it on the street? As you talk about, it's, not, yes. it's also very important where the performances are happening. You say there's Absolutely. open spaces and there's closed spaces, and then there's also the hidden spaces.
2: Yeah, those distinctions, again, go back to the, the Greeks. A lot of their rituals, you know, in Athens, for instance, snaked through uh, the agora on their way up the hill. They were street rituals. And uh, that's true in the medieval era, too. There are lots of street rituals, which are performances. But there is starting with, at the same time, particularly starting in the late Hellenic theater and Roman theater the notion that the theater is a closed world, that the stage and the street are divorced, and that what you see in a theater, you would never see or do in the street. And for me, the kind of real consummation for that is the first enclosed, totally enclosed theater, which is the Teatro Olimpico in uh, Vicenza, which, made it possible for people as they couldn't, for instance, in the Globe Theater, to attend a performance, even if it was raining Mm. outside, if it was very cold, the theater became a world of its own. And that is something that culminates in 19th and early 20th century theater design. Wagner's uh, Bayreuth is a kind of world unto itself. And now in theater design, we wanna bring the stage not back into the street because there are technical reasons why enclosure is necessary in theaters of some sort, but to have a more porous relationship between the stage and the street so you can go in and out of the theater. You know, one of the things about street theater is that it's very hard to see and it's very hard to hear. As you noticed, if you ever watch somebody busking who does it well, the first row gets everything. But if you're four rows back from the busker, you're not hearing very much. There's too much echo and so on. So we need special places for theater. Dancers um, need them because they need sprung floors, very difficult to, to dance on paving stones but nonetheless there is a way in which this separation between stage and street gave the theater a kind of uh, metaphorically a kind of power over everyday life it's a place in which people can exercise the willing suspension of disbelief Mm. because there's no outside you know it's a world unto itself Mm. that's Good and evil, good and ill, that's what theatre can, spaces can do.
0: You make the point that musical performance is one of the most kind of participatory, Uh, but I guess that also is highly dependent. I mean, you write a lot about the jazz clubs of New York in the 60s, but you make the point that that was a very particular kind of space.
2: Yes, well, it's a space I knew because the jazz club, when I was young, uh, all those eons ago, (laughs) the jazz clubs in Harlem catered, they were formal and catering to tourists, but the ones that were part of the community were just uh, uh, performers would line one side of the wall in in a room. There'd be tables, people drinking, smoking, talking. And a lot of these uh, jazz musicians were sort of background music for social life. And that was very, very worrisome to them. I mean, people, they were playing for themselves because people weren't listening to them. Now, you can say the spectator is empowered under those circumstances, but the artist is disempowered.
1: Yes it's very difficult to to play or do anything like that when people are talking and speaking. Did you ever go
2: to Ronnie Scott's? Yes right. yes yeah Indeed. well you know the same it's the, a problem was a problem in Ronnie Scott's the greatest jazz club in London but people tend to smoke drink and and chat <laughs> It's
0: that cabaret kind of setting isn't it small yes. tables and uh, yes
1: I have tried to perform in front of people who are eating or drinking or whatever. And it's, yeah. very, it's very, it's very difficult to do. The killer it.
2: is the uh, cell phone. Yes. Because you're looking at the cell phone, you're, you know, just checking your messages while somebody else is, 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 is performing something that they really worked on and they really want to put over to you. And you say, Oh gosh, I got, I just got a WhatsApp. That yes. I, yes, I would respond to. That's, yeah. that's a real killer for theater.
0: It I is. Guess it's one of those really interesting spaces where one of the things that it also tells you about is people's attitude towards time, mm. isn't it? Because of course, really, we think, well, you surely should be able to be out of your ordinary life of checking WhatsApps and your phone and talking to people for an hour or two hours or three hours. But maybe the fact that people aren't is also because they have these things in their pockets, of course, but because they have a sense of their time being under incredible pressure, which is very dangerous to the idea of actually focusing on a piece of art and performance, isn't it?
2: That's very interesting you say that. That's very interesting. I have wondered, I grew up with a, a television and I grew up doing nothing but reading reading and playing music, but nothing for to pass the hours I wasn't working as a musician. Um, you know, I I read Balzac, I read all, when I was younger, I, I read uh, C.S. Lewis, all of, that, that was my experience hours and hours past reading. And I wonder if the fact that people no longer are passing time by reading is, Part of the reason that it isn't that the the attention spans are shorter; they're fragmented. You know, mm-hmm. uh, multitasking is something you don't do when you're reading "The Wind and the Willows." You know, you're just in it, you yeah. know, kid. But um, now you read a bit and you sort of check the phone and so on. There is a parallel in music. I mean, there are people who can sit immobile through the Ring Cycle, but there are not many of them.
1: <laughs> no, there's not that many. Can sit <laughs> and, but people did
2: it in the 19th century. A concert could go on for four or five hours mm. in the 19th century. People are just there. They had surrendered to it. Whereas when I was working as um, in a quartet, we always had to think about where we were going to, for instance, put Schubert in the program, because Schubert makes big demands on time and he makes big demands on oral memory. That is that when you hear there are lots of uh, repeats of things that are transformed uh, harmonically, sometimes uh, melodically as well. And people have to pay attention for a long time to do that. Anyhow, for us, it was, we knew that if we put Schubert in the beginning of a program, people were gone. You know, that's a 40-minute uh, piece was it. You had One piece, you exhausted them you mm. put it on after an intermission, which was a little easier. But it's a whole thing about engaging people gradually to forget and just focus on the music, and forget about other things. So it's a, it's an art problem as as well as a social problem. Do mm. you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it it absolutely is. You've got many kind of moments like that. There's lots of beautiful moments of memoir that you use throughout the book. Oh, thank you. To illuminate. Well, one of them is the as you like it. In the hospital, and the other one was this this wonderful thing about Roland Barthes, When you're oh. talking about who, <laughs> this is very interesting to me. I'll, I'll because explain we it. You always imagine him as being incredibly elegant and self contained. Like oh. work. but but you, I mean, you do kind of show oh. us this area. Well, that's he nice. Wasn't. He
2: was elegant in a in yes, sure. A but, yeah. but
1: it's interesting that where you say he wasn't, there was there was an area where he was less in control. Well, it?
2: his real passion in life. Was music. And uh, I, uh, when I first knew him, I think he'd actually come to a concert of mine. Uh, when I first knew him, uh, we were, I often played for him, but sometimes I could get him to play four hands with me, with piano four hands, Hubert's and Mozart occasionally. And this, as you think, elegant man had a real problem, which was when he was technically challenged, he began to over emote. And it's something that happens with many amateurs that it's almost a compensatory thing that you become more soulful the less you have something under your under your fingertips. And I tried to help him over the years I knew him just relax. Feel free to make mistakes. You know, if he loses his place, just catch up with me. It's not a sin to make an error, but for him, he was. It was. You know, music was a temple, and so he played music very differently than he wrote. He is a very flippant writer. Bach lui-même or fragment de discours amoureux. These are, these are funny books. Mm. You know, they're also sad books, but they're funny books. And he had none of that kind of uh, esprit when he played. It was all deadly serious.
1: It was too close to him, you think. And it, maybe he was frustrated because he didn't have it under his fingers, like you said. Yeah.
2: Well, the thing about this, that what it signifies is that oftentimes there's a correlation between subjective feeling and incompetence. Uh, And the more incompetent you are, the more tense you become, the more you over-emote. And I think that's true in life as well as in playing piano four hands, that if you're not relaxed with other people physically, that you tend to be um, overly emotional with them spiritually, if I can put it that way. For musicians, uh, for all artists, performers, the problem is that when this syndrome kicks in, you're not attending to the people around you. You become Mm. very inward. Mm. You're there playing your heart out. And if somebody else is, um, you're playing with somebody else, you're not really attending to them because you're struggling with the music. So in my book, I'm trying to show the relationship between a kind of relaxed body, a body which is comfortable in its own skin, and the ability to cooperate with other people. And I've written about this before in a book on cooperation, but never in terms of music. I was interested in offices and factories. But it works. I had the idea for that by thinking about my own musical practice with Roland what I tried to do and failed to achieve was just to get him to sit at the piano with me our thighs touching but he would do nothing nothing would happen and when he had that notion of bodily contact with somebody else but he wasn't struggling to make music he actually played better he played more his More technically competent, but with less of this inwardness, Sturm und Drang. Mm. And when, you know, with professional musicians, we want to do the same thing. Somebody who winds up an orchestra as a conductor, it makes them tense and afraid, doesn't get as good results as somebody who's a, a colleague to them. I give an example of this. Did you see the film Tar?
1: Yes. I'm afraid I haven't, but I have. I've heard about it, yes.
2: yeah. yeah. Well, it's of a conductor who's a, a real bad, it's a she, yeah. who's a real baddie to her orchestra, humiliates them, you know, and is full of passion and sentiment. What I and the group of musicians I went to hear it with said, so, gosh, she's not getting anything out of the, the conductor, out of this orchestra. They're not responding at all. Mm. Whereas somebody like Lenny Bernstein, if, if you see Maestro, which mm. is a pretty good movie about conducting, he is a colleague. He's one of them, and he's suffering on their behalf. Yes, because
1: yeah. he's also very passionate, isn't he? But I see what you oh. mean. He's, he's doing it with them, not against them or kind of direct telling them what to do, as it were.
2: I played for him uh, once. I subbed in an orchestra was playing. It was incredible. You thought, what is going on here, you know? But he was so nice. I mean, he was a... Right, so he wasn't
1: tyrannical at all. No,
2: not at all. And, you know, that image of the kind of Toscanini tyrant, Toscanini Mm. himself could be a tyrant, but he could also be a lamb. It's something about uh, the relationship of physicalness and it's learned to get that kind of comfort is something that tamps down subjectivity of a bad sort and increases cooperativeness. And I, that's what I want to explain in the book. I don't know how well I've done it, but that's the point of what I'm trying to get at.
1: Mm. Well, I suppose, first of all, you feel more at ease with yourself and then you feel more at yeah. ease at the fact that there are other beings there and you don't have to to worry.
2: And you feel more at ease even when you make mistakes you know,
1: yeah.
2: and there's a kind of Zen archery technique in which you aim to miss the target. That sounds nice. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and you miss the target, miss the target, and then suddenly it doesn't matter, and then you're hitting the target fine because uh, you've lost the notion, I have to perform this way. Yeah,
1: yeah. Listen, this is just wonderful, but I'm aware that we're taking up a lot of your time in what must be a very busy week because your book is out. It's just out, isn't it?
2: Yes, it's out. uh, It was out on uh, Friday. I had a good review in Amazon. so that. (laughs) Well,
1: there you go. (laughs) (laughs) You're all set.
2: That was calming to me. But, uh, you know, like all authors, I take all praises, not really about me, but anything that's critical is deeply, deeply uh, personal, you know. So I'm waiting for my review in The Spectator, which I'm sure will be horrible. <laughs> so, you know.
1: I mean, we had got it this weekend, didn't we, Alex? And, and I absolutely loved it, I have to say. Oh, and I'm so happy. Completely ripped. Yeah. Yep. You've made my
0: day. Thank <laughs> you so much. That we, we were just thrilled when we heard that you would have time to come to speak to us. And it's just been wonderful to talk to you. I did not expect that we would get such a rich anecdote of the nervous life of Roland Barthes, I must oh. say. <laughs> the icing on a wonderful, wonderful cake.
2: Well, thank you very much.
0: That was just wonderful. And Richard, I was so thrilled, you know, when you were sitting in the jazz clubs. I think my father was there. No. Yes, I think so. He worked on ships going between the UK and New York. And he would dock and get straight onto the subway and go to Harlem to listen to jazz. Oh, my gosh. And he's a fan of everybody. And it was kind of the thing that he talked about his whole life. And then actually one of the last concerts I ever went to him with was Ornette Coleman at, at Festival Hall. Which was oh. I think, one of the best concerts I've ever been to in my life. It was oh, really, extraordinary.
2: Oh, wow. just wow! Did you hear a lot of jazz when you were growing up?
0: All jazz. It was jazz oh. morning, noon, and night.
2: Oh.
0: <laughs> all, <laughs> all the time. And he just loved it all. And it was incredibly important to him. And sort of, I feel like it's almost like a kind of secondhand thing I listen to in a way. I yeah. like it myself, but I kind of feel like I'm listening to it through his ears sometimes. Wow. So, anyway, well, you know, <laughs> uh, just
2: as a, a final comment, what the jazz musicians that I knew put paid to the notion that art for art's sake is some kind of elitist trope, hmm. because here were these jazz musicians. They weren't in Arnett's Coleman's class, but the ones I knew were pretty good, and they were the ones playing in these local jazz clubs while people smoked. And uh, talked, and there were people like Alberta Hunter, who I was privileged to know at the end of her life, who worked as a, basically in in a hospital as a laundress
1: for Mm. thirty
2: years. Art for art's sake kept her going, you Mm. know, and uh, something not to snoot, you know. Mm. Uh, Mm. So anyhow, I become an (laughs) esthete.
1: Well, we're very glad because yeah. we, get, we get to read about it and hear about it.
2: Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's really nice to talk to you both. Thank
0: very, you so very much. Best of luck with publication and thanks again.
1: Yeah, it's, everyone's going to love it. I'm sure they are. Oh, well, let's hope. <laughs> okay, thank you so okay. much. Thank, thank you. Bye bye.